With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the reading of the Courier Journal for Monday, January 9th, which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. The Courier Journal is donated to Radio I by the Herald Leader. As a reminder, Radio I is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Vicki Trubiano. We'll go to the weather first, um, which is brought to you by the First Alert Storm Team at WHAS. Today, the high is 47, mostly sunny. Tonight, the low is 35, seasonably cold. Tomorrow, the high is 55, the low 38, the clouds will return with sprinkles. Wednesday, the high is 55, the low is 47, mostly cloudy. Thursday, high is 56, low is 40, mild with rain at times. On Friday, the high is 46, the low 32, cloudy, breezy, and cooler. And on Saturday, it looks like it's going to be cloudy and cool with a high of 43 and a low of 32. A nice, though slightly chilly afternoon is in store for today. We stay dry today with sunshine, but clouds do not stay away for long and move back in overnight. The highs today make it to the middle 40s for most. Milder air will be in place by tomorrow as we see the 50s return. Cloud cover will stick around all week with a few showers on Wednesday ahead of heavier rain on Thursday. From the Almanac, the high, um, this is uh, Louisville through 4 p.m. on Sunday, yesterday. The high, 44, the low, 40. The normal high, 43, and the low, 28. The record high was 70 in 2008, and the record low was a minus 15 in 1942. Precipitation, 24 hours through 4 p.m. on Sunday, zero. Month to date, 2.65 inches. Normal month to date, 0.94 inches. Year to date, 2.65 inches. Normal year to date, 0.94 inches. Snowfall, 24 hours through 4 p.m. on Sunday, zero. Month to date, zero. Normal month to date, one inch. Season to date, 4.7 inches. And the normal season to date, 3.6 inches. The air quality, um, moderate yesterday and good today. Sun and moon today, sunrise 8 a.m., sunset 5.41 p.m., the moonrise 8.14 p.m., and set 10.02 a.m. Tomorrow, sunrise 7.59 a.m., sunset 5.41 p.m., 
Moonrise, 9.14 p.m. and set, 10.30 a.m. January 14, uh, the moon, last half, new moon, January 21st, half January 28th, and full moon, February 5th. We move now to the front page of the Courier-Journal and the headlines, Retired Judge Chauvin Reflects on 19-Year Career. And this is from Andrew Wilson of the Louisville Courier-Journal. And please forgive me for any mispronunciations during this reading. As a baby-faced prosecutor, McKay Chauvin sent Vincent Stouffer to death row for the murder of Deputy Sheriff Gregory Hans. He won life sentences for both men charged with the 1997 murder of Quentin Hammond, 15, a standout student and athlete at Manuel High School, who was gunned down at a bus stop during the robbery of his gym shoes. In 19 years on the bench, Chauvin tried to fashion what he called thoughtful sentences for decent people who did awful things. They included Michael Bishop, the target of a childhood game called Ding Dong Ditch, who opened fire on children he thought had rang his doorbell, then run away. He hit one of them, a 12-year-old boy, in the back. Chauvin initially sentenced Bishop to 10 years in prison, but later released him on shock probation after adding five years to his sentence to extend his time under supervision. I had to send a message that he did a stupid thing, but he was not the kind of person that prisons are built for, Chauvin said last month. He said he got more letters about the case than any other. After working 34 years in the trenches of the criminal justice system, the first 15 as a prosecutor, and 19 on the bench, Jefferson Circuit Judge McKay Chauvin has hung up his robe. He is 58 and doesn't know what he will do next, but he wanted to retire well young enough to start another career. His last day was January 1st. Admirers, and even some of his detractors, say in both roles Chauvin was bright, effective, and funny. He was a fantastic prosecutor, said Brian Butler, who, like Chauvin, prosecuted in both state and federal court. He had a schoolboyish way of connecting with juries, and as a result, he was one of the most successful prosecutors the Commonwealth Attorney's Office has ever produced. As a judge, Butler said Chauvin never failed to do what he thought was right. Even what he thought was right was not popular. He was truly a public servant. But he wasn't universally admired. Some defense lawyers accused him of favoring police and the prosecution and sending too many offenders to prison on drug charges. Defense attorney Scott C. Cox, a former federal prosecutor who holds Chauvin in high regard, said he made some defense counsels uncomfortable by second-guessing bonds set previously by district court judges and sometimes ordering defendants back into custody. In a long interview over two days in December, as he was shutting down his chambers, Chauvin talked about some of his most challenging cases on the bench and as a prosecutor. He offered no apologies for being hard on drug dealers or on defense lawyers he thought were poorly representing their clients. 
He said that translated into some lawyers thinking I am an A blank blank. In a 2019 hearing, Chauvin famously eviscerated Louisville attorney Teddy Gordon for bringing a frivolous suit to court, misstating the law and accusing Chauvin of bias. The judge had his bailiff remove Gordon from the courtroom. Sitting in judgment, Arch Cox McKay Chauvin, a Louisville native, comes from a family of lawyers. His late father, L. Stanley Brother Chauvin, who went by Stan, represented small cities in Jefferson County and rose to president of the American Bar Association. His sister Jacqueline was a lawyer, and his brother, who also goes by Stan, is still one. My mom used to say she wished she had one child who had some kind of skill, like a plumber. McKay Chauvin said. He is known for his colorful bow ties, seersucker suits, and a dry sense of humor, which he consciously employed to ease tensions in the courtroom. He may have been joking, but he described himself as the second funniest circuit judge in Kentucky after only Steve Wilson of Bowling Green. During the pandemic, for example, when colleague Charles Cunningham asked how to keep a lawyer from calling into hearings on Zoom, falling asleep and snoring, Chauvin told him, don't be so boring. Chauvin would sneak colorful references and cultural touchstones into the most serious proceedings, such as the 2021 murder trial of ex-Metropolitan Sewer District worker Roger Burdett, who was convicted of barreling into office Officer Deidre's Mengolt's cruiser while driving under the influence while watching porn on his cell phone. Burdett moved to suppress the fact the video was porn on the grounds it would prejudice the jury. Chauvin didn't buy it. He said the fact it was porn was crucial to showing Burdett was watching the video rather than just listening to it. Pornography is a visual medium, Chauvin said. So unless Aaron Sorkin or David Mamet, the famed screenwriter and playwright, respectively, wrote the script, Chauvin said, there is very little chance the defendant listened to it rather than watched. Despite his reputation among defense attorneys, Chauvin sometimes showed remarkable sympathy with impaired drivers such as Tammy Brewer, an emergency medical technician who crashed an ambulance while driving while high on methadone, killing a patient on board. Chauvin sentenced her to 10 years in prison, but a few months later released her on shock probation, which is des designed to shock an offender by giving them a taste of incarceration. Chauvin ordered her to serve another 12 months in jail to ensure she finished her drug addiction treatment. The victim's family was still furious. They thought the sentence was too light, but Brewer's lawyer, David Yates, said the extra jail time helped his client by reducing the chance she would relapse. Like every judge, Chauvin made mistakes. His most tragic was his 2012 decision to honor a request from prosecutors to release James Mallory from prison after he supposedly offered bombshell evidence implicating several defendants. Less than two months later, Mallory shot and killed Gregory Holt, 15, an eighth grader at Farnsley Middle School. 
Mallory was supposedly seeking revenge against Gregory's mother. Chauvin knew Mallory could be dangerous. He had previously denied him shock probation, but Chauvin declined to blame prosecutors for the boy's death. As a judge, you cannot control the future, and it is impossible to predict, he said. You have to be mindful of potential disaster, but you have to make decisions. Chauvin was criticized nationally for signing a warrant in 2017, allowing Louisville Metro Police to search the newsroom of WRDB for outtakes of an interview with the man suspected, but not charged, was shooting a police officer in the foot. The suspect told the station the officer shot himself in the foot. Chauvin withdrew the warrant after the station said it was illegal, and another judge quashed LMPD's subpoena for the material. The incident was cited as a demonstration of Chauvin's police bias. He said at the time he was just trying to make sure the records were preserved, and somehow it turned into something much bigger. The Courier-Journal's review found Chauvin sometimes rejected the Commonwealth's recommendations. When prosecutors asked for life without parole in 2007 for defendant Terry Snell in the slaying of a man whose body was found in Floyd's Fork Park, Chauvin said that while Snell's crime was monstrous, he was not beyond hope of rehabilitation in prison. Chauvin ordered him considered for parole in 25 years. Chauvin said the most important thing he did as judge was to launch a program he called SMART Probation for supervision, motivation, accountability, responsibility, and treatment. Chauvin made offenders he probated appear in his courtroom every two weeks for what he dubbed kumbaya sessions, in which he would transition from judge to addiction counselor and life coach to teach them to get along and stay out of prison. Chauvin, a psychology major at Vanderbilt University, said it worked, and a Moorhead State University study of six similar programs in Kentucky seemed to confirm that. Chauvin also taught a generation of future lawyers at the University of Louisville's Brandeis School of Law how to try a case. The prosecutor years. Chauvin and his wife, Laura, have three children, ages 29, 27, and 20, along with five dogs and a pig. His tough guy reputation was belied by his unusual hobby. Chauvin collects children's lunchboxes. He has 50, but is currently searching for a rare Star Trek dome lunchbox, which he says is very valuable. He started a lunchbox club at Trinity High School, from which he graduated in 1982. We all carried one, he said. I would have gotten beat up, but I was the captain of the football team. At six foot, 190 pounds, he played defensive end and was named 13 All-State. Chauvin went directly to the Commonwealth Attorney's Office after graduating from Georgetown University Law School. He won the first case he tried himself, a 1991 murder, in which the victim was captured on a 911 call describing his fatal assault. The perpetrator, Roger J. Kuyper Jr., had had consensual sex with victim Richard Panuzio, but Kuyper exploded when Panuzio called him a gay slur, Chauvin said. 
Kuiper claimed Panuzio came after him with a knife, but Chauvin said he showed the defendant lied 14 times on the witness stand. He was really ashamed he had had gay sex, Chauvin said. Kuiper was convicted of manslaughter under emotional distress rather than murder. The victim's last words, as recorded by the 911 operator, were, I am dead. Chauvin said it was ironic he was chosen to prosecute the capital case against Stouffer for killing Deputy Sheriff Hans on a domestic violence run. Chauvin said he made no secret of his reservations about the death penalty, but he said, my job was to present the facts to the jury. Stouffer, now 50, is still awaiting execution at the Kentucky State Penitentiary at Eddyville. Chauvin declined to say whether he wants to see Stouffer put to death. Chauvin said his most embarrassing defeat as a prosecutor came in another murder case. Selecting the jury, he said, he had the choice of striking a demonstrably crazy person or a lawyer who practiced civil law. He kept the lawyer who was elected fireman and persuaded, I'm sorry, was elected foreman and persuaded the jury to acquit, Chauvin said. He didn't know what he was doing, Chauvin said. He thought prosecutors got to take the defendant's deposition like in civil cases. Chauvin said other jurors realized they had been led astray and apologized to Chauvin. Chauvin started at the Commonwealth's Attorney Office in 1989 at a meager annual salary of $18,000 and finally left 10 years later for the higher pay offer down the street by the U.S. Attorney's Office. Cox said Chauvin was bored by the slower pace, but Chauvin compensated by building probably the most integrated anti-gun violence program ever utilized in Jefferson County, said Mark Miller a former federal prosecutor and state police commissioner. Chauvin offers no apology for winning a verdict in state court that proved to be enormously expensive for taxpayers. Carrie Porter had been a small-time thief before Chauvin won a conviction against him in the 1996 ambush, ambush murder of over-the-road trucker Tyrone Camp. But after Porter served 11 years of his 60-year sentence, he was exonerated and freed from prison. He recovered a $7. million settlement from Louisville Metro for his wrongful incarceration, which his lawyers blamed on shoddy police work and improper eyewitness identification. Porter pointed the finger at an extraordinarily violent alternative suspect, whom Chauvin said during a bench conference in Porter's trial, was capable of killing everybody in this courtroom just for fun. But Chauvin maintained then, as he does today, that Porter was the killer, and he is still furious the city paid him the settlement. In response, Porter's lawyer, Elliot Slosar, said, McKay Chauvin was a formidable prosecutor in his heyday, who could convict anyone for anything, including, as the wrongful conviction of Carrie Porter illustrates, even the innocent. While Chauvin continues to defend his role in the Porter prosecution, Slosar said the victim's family, the city of Louisville, and a former Commonwealth attorney have come to believe that Carrie Porter was wrongfully convicted 
and that his prosecution enabled the true perpetrators to get away with murder. In the next article, Is GOP Member Being Ostracized? Southworth Sits Alone in a Shadowy Corner. And this is from Olivia Krauth and Joe Sanka of the Louisville Courier-Journal. When Kentucky senators walk into the Senate chambers, Republicans fill row after row. Well, all but one. Once positioned in an aisle seat in the middle of the room, Senator Adrienne Southworth now finds herself sitting alone in a far-flung shadowy corner of the chamber, surrounded by Democrats. After frequently finding herself at odds with others in her party last year, largely overspreading election conspiracy theories, including during floor speeches, it appears Republicans are ostracizing one of their own. On the floor, the Lawrenceburg Republican sits nowhere near her Republican caucus members. The seat next to her will be empty for much of the sessions, as voters in Louisville elect a replacement for Morgan McGarvey, a Democrat who has moved on to the U.S. House of Representatives. As And as committee meetings begin in full force, Southworth won't be seen much. After being on four committees last year, the average amount for a Republican senator, she was only placed on one this session. In a message to the Courier-Journal, Southworth said she didn't ask to switch seats and had requested to be on the same committees as last session. She was first elected in 2021. When asked about the seating chart Wednesday night, Senate President Robert Stivers gave a wide smile before saying, We have 31 people. We have to use 31 seats. Southward had previously drawn GOP scorn. The animosity between Southward and other Senate Republicans hasn't been a secret. In the 2022 legislative session, Republican members sometimes openly rolled their eyes and bristled at the lengthy four speeches of Southward, especially when she brought up allegations of election fraud and voting machines in Kentucky being hooked up to the Internet. After one such speech in March on an election bill, Senate Majority Floor Leader Damon Thayer replied, we don't have the time to debunk all of this, but I have to tell you, almost every point that the senator from Anderson made is in fact wrong. During another debate on an election bill in April, Thayer again replied to a Southworth floor speech by saying that her points were complete myth, as well as criticizing her statewide Restore Election Integrity Tour which spreads similar unfounded conspiracy theories. Southworth's voting record also irked Republican members at the time, as she often was a lone Republican voting against bills sponsored and favored by her caucus. Responding to a tweet about how her desk in the chamber was moved into the corner with Democrats, Republican Secretary of State Michael Adams replied, Not a surprise, she voted with Senate Democrats 24% of the time last session. Adams has been one of the most critical Republicans of Southworth, bashing the falsehood spread in her election integrity tour and her support of numerous recount efforts by GOP candidates who lost their primary race last May, which he deemed frivolous. Stivers, caucus rule change not aimed at anyone. 
A few of those failed candidates showed up to the Capitol on Wednesday to protest a new rule change allowing senators to kick people out of their party caucuses or add them. Some protesters tied to the conservative liberty movement felt the change was targeted at liberty-leaning lawmakers such as Southworth. When asked about the rule change Tuesday, Stivers came close to rolling his eyes. You know, people want to, for some reason, think sometimes that they are the focal point of everything in and around the system, and that doesn't happen to be accurate, Stivers retorted. He said he noticed an uptick in people of one party switching party registration to undermine the opposing party, and more people are registering and running as independents. The rule change was supposed to help with transparency, and it isn't targeted at a specific lawmaker. When pressed to confirm lawmakers have not considered removing someone from a caucus, Stiver scoffed and offered a long, drawn-out no. I don't know where that started because that was never discussed, Stivers told reporters Tuesday. And that's why I go back to saying some people think that maybe they're the center of the universe or something. Wednesday afternoon, Stivers ran into a collection of Southworth supporters standing outside the GOP caucus meeting. Some clutched signs opposing the rule change. When questioned about whether Southworth would be removed or that the change could be used to bring Democrats into the Republican caucus, Stivers told them they were acting on bad information. For some reason, they had it in their minds that we were going to take some action, Stivers said Wednesday night. I said, somebody's giving you some misinformation because that was not even on our agenda. Southworth, only senator with one committee. Southworth sat on four committees last session, Natural Resources and Energy Education, Economic Development, and State and Local Government. Now she sits on just one, Natural Resources and Energy. No other senator sits on just one committee where policies are debated and receive their first vote. While I loved having a heavy committee load, a light load is providing me more flexibility in researching new items, plus strengthening communication to my new 100,000 constituents from redistricting, Southworth said in a message Wednesday night. She strongly opposed the redistricting measure last year after it changed nearly every county in her district. Adams responded to this story with a tweet declaring he is very grateful she was removed for the committee that oversees election legislation and can no longer use it as a platform for her falsehoods about our process. As for her new seat, Southworth said the front corner has the best view because I can see every face. Many others have told me they also love this placement that only the president otherwise enjoys, she said. On the Senate floor Thursday, Republican senators gathered for a group photograph of their caucus. Senator Julie Rick Adams, the GOP caucus chair, called Southworth to find her for the photo. No response, a GOP spokesperson said. So, only one member was missing from the photo, Southworth. You can reach Olivia Krauth at OKRAUTH at CourierJournal.com. And you can reach reporter Joe Sanka 
at jsonka at couriergjournal.com. This concludes readings for the first sections of the Courier Journal for Monday, January 9th. Stay tuned for the Metro section to follow immediately. Your reader has been Vicki Trupiano. Now to continue reading from the Courier Journal for Monday, January 9th, we turn to the Metro section. Your reader continues to be Vicki Trupiano. We turn to the obituaries. We read the name, the age, and the location. If you would like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we'll be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I'll repeat that number at the end of the listing. Barbara Jean Adams, 72, Sellersburg. Betty J. Beardsley, 43, Richmond. Susan May Bell, 67, Louisville. Ronald Bolton, 87, Russell Springs. Herbert Ray Chesser, 78, Bloomfield. Ed Clark, 86, no location. Edie Marie Cole, 57, Louisville. Wilbert Conley, Jr., 65, Louisville. Sandra Ray Cox, 59, Jeffersonville, Indiana. Kenneth Wayne Crawford, 89, Louisville. Ralph Jim Doherty, 79, Sellersburg. Bob Foster, 62, Louisville. Doris M. Hickerson, 87, Clarksville. Ashley Hughes, 49, Shelbyville. Dion L. Lewis, 52, no location. Earl Matheny, 91, Canelton. Beverly Hale Pacheco, 43, Richmond. Clarence I. Phillips, 88, Claremont. Tom Mitchell Price, 74, Bardstown. Edna C. Raley, 93, Glasgow. Constance Sen, 79, Louisville. Mayola Kidwell Shoemaker, 84, Macville. Stanny Elizabeth Stocksdale, 77, New Albany. Gary Wayne Wagoner, 72, Houston. And Mildred Harp Webb, 82, Sweden. Again, if you'd like further information on any of the listings today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we'll be glad to read the entire item to you. In the first article from the Metro section, 250,000 could lose Medicaid coverage. State to determine who is eligible for this spring. And this is from Ray Johnson of the Louisville Courier-Journal. Disastrous outcomes could be in the cards for Kentuckians who lose health insurance after the state begins to redetermine who is eligible for Medicaid this spring, according to Family Health Center CEO Bart Irwin. An estimated 250,000 Kentucky residents could lose medical coverage via Medicaid, a joint federal and state-run health care program that ensures about 1.7 million people across the Commonwealth after the state starts to reevaluate who is eligible for the program, according to Ashley Shoemaker, Director of Outreach and Enrollment at Family Health Centers. She told Louisville Metro Board of Health members at Wednesday's meeting that reevaluations are set to begin on April 1st. During the COVID-19 pandemic, 
the federal government paused eligibility redeterminations for those already enrolled in the program, Shoemaker said Thursday. For the last two years, it didn't matter if you moved or your income increased, you'd still be covered. States now have 12 months to return to normal Medicaid operations. The number of Medicaid patients seen by family health centers increased by about 5% in the past two years, Irwin said, adding significantly to the group's income. Now, however, family health centers estimates 42,000 people in Jefferson County could lose Medicaid coverage following the redetermination period. The group's loss of Medicaid patients will have a ripple effect on operations, Irwin said. The center, which gets about 66% of its income from Medicaid, served about 43,000 total patients last year, with just over 9,000 covered by Medicaid. It used the more than $2 million it received from Medicaid to provide services to uninsured folks. Family Health Centers is one of only three facilities in the city that provide low-cost or free medical, dental, behavior, health, and pharmacy services to uninsured patients. Without the extra income from Medicaid, Irwin said, family health centers won't be able to provide those services at the same volume as it could during the pandemic. Shoemaker said it's vital to get people enrolled for coverage. It can save lives, she said. Health insurance is what gives you a foot in the door for a lot of our health care system in the United States, she said. So if someone does not have health insurance, they may have trouble getting medication, seeing a specialist, or getting the follow-up care that they need. Even if they do have insurance, patients can be saddled with astronomical medical bills, Shoemaker added. Patients who will no longer receive Medicaid may still be eligible for a qualified health plan under the Affordable Care Act, Shoemaker said. The Biden administration has previously extended the public health emergency issue during the pandemic for not by 90 days a time, which prevented the center from planning further ahead. Now, though, Shoemaker said looking ahead to maintain or find coverage is critical. How can I prevent losing health insurance from Medicaid? Family Health Centers is working to pinpoint patients who are likely to lose coverage, Shoemaker said. The outreach team is using available information to reach patients who are at risk in the meantime, but other steps can be taken to prevent loss of coverage. Medicaid patients should be sure to keep contact information with the program updated to ensure they know when their determination will take place, Shoemaker said. Information can be updated through the online portal at kynect.ky.gov or over the phone at 1-855-459-6328. What happens if I lose coverage through Medicaid? Some people who lose coverage through Medicaid may be eligible for the state's qualified health plans under the Affordable Care Act. In addition, payment assistance may be available to help offset the cost of premiums included in those plans, Shoemaker said. 
Shoemaker also encouraged people who are employed to check if insurance programs are available through their workplace. Family Health Centers, Park Duval Community Health Centers, and Shawnee Christian Healthcare Center are the city's three qualified health centers that provide low-cost or free services to uninsured patients, according to Irwin. You can contact reporter Ray Johnson at rnjohnson at gannett.com. In the second article from the Metro section, LG&E to close all business offices, everything to be shut down by the end of 2024. And this is from Olivia Evans of the Louisville Courier-Journal. LG&E-KU, the main gas and electric provider across the state, announced it would be closing all 26 of its business offices by the end of 2024, including its location in downtown Louisville. In a December news release from the company, it stated the decision to close all physical office locations was due to fewer in-person transactions with customers relying more on self-services such as the LG&E app, online accounts, or automated phone calls. Since 2014, LG&EKU has seen a 42% decline in walk-in services, said Liz Pratt, a media relations manager at LG&EKU. There were a number of factors that influenced this decision to include a a decline in customer walk-in traffic, increased staffing challenges exacerbated by the pandemic, customers' increased use of our self-serve channels that are available 24-7, and best practices among similar utilities moving away from the walk-in center model, Pratt told the Courier-Journal. There are roughly 70 employees across the offices. Pratt said the company is working to identify other opportunities for those employees. Here's what to know about the office closures. When are the LG&E offices closing? The office closures are expected to occur in phases with seven KU offices scheduled to close on March 31st. KU operates 25 total business offices across the coverage territory. Louisville has one business office at 820 West Broadway. LG&E has not yet announced its scheduled closing date. Where can I pay my LG&E bill in person? All services that were available at the business offices are available in the mobile app and online accounts 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Pratt said. For customers who prefer to pay their gas and electricity bills in person, many authorized retail locations such as Kroger, Family Dollar, Walmart, and CVS will accept payments. Customers will still be allowed to mail payments for free. We expect to add more authorized retail payment locations over the next several months, Pratt said. How many customers does LG&E serve? LG&E provides services to 333,000 natural gas and 429,000 electric customers across Louisville and 16 counties, 
KU services 566,000 electric customers across 77 Kentucky counties and five counties in Virginia. We've been a part of our Kentucky and Virginia communities for more than a century, and we're proud to continue to support the communities we serve, Pratt said. While our operations may be evolving, what isn't changing is our connection to our neighbors and local communities. You can contact reporter Olivia Evans at oevans at courier-journal.com. Moving on, Louisville chef tapped to host Food Network show. His Super Chef Grudge match premieres February 7th, and this article is from Dahlia Gabor of the Louisville Courier-Journal. A Louisville chef is going big after years of co-hosting and competing on a variety of Food Network shows. This season will see him hosting his own show for the first time. Super Chef Darnell Ferguson, who co-hosts the current season of Worst Cooks in America and previously competed on three seasons of Guy Fieri's Tournament of Champions, will premiere a show called Super Chef Grudge Match on February 7th at 9 p.m. The show will see Ferguson stage two different battles between chefs who have beef with each other to finally put a feud to rest and win a $10,000 cash prize, a prize knife from the losing chef, and lifelong bragging rights over their food foe, a press release stated. This is not your normal Food Network show in the sense of how intense it is, Ferguson told the Courier-Journal. It's funny. It's entertaining. It keeps drawing you back in. Two people with a rivalry will finally get to duke it out, then put it to rest. It's someone who called someone out and someone who accepted the call. So the backstories are cool. You can't get this anywhere else. It's an exciting show that fits me perfectly. In the series premiere, Darnell will welcome chefs Antonio Lafazzo and Jet Tila to settle their Tournament of Champions rivalry. The two chefs were tied in every category until Tyla won a rematch in the finale by one point. Then mentor restaurateur Brian Malarkey will take on his protege, Carlos Anthony. The two have opened 10 restaurants together, but argue over who pulls the culinary weight and who pulls the spotlight. Other upcoming episodes will feature a culinary commentator clash between Justin Warner and Simon Majundar, an Iron Chef gauntlet rivalry reunion with Stephanie Izard and Shota Nakajima, and a dispute over social media is settled between San Diego's Drew Bent and Claudia Sandoval. Super Chef Grudge Match competitors have conflict with each other when they enter the kitchen, and the drama only intensifies from there. Food Network Senior Vice President of Programming and Development, Betsy Ayala, said in a release. Just like show host Darnell Ferguson, these competitors are bold, brash, and incredibly talented. They will do whatever it takes to win against their culinary rival. Ferguson, the owner of Super Chefs, 1702 Bardstown Road, and Thaw Dippin' Crab 
1219 West Jefferson Street, is no stranger to cooking competitions. A recent contender in Guy Fieri's Tournament of Champions, Ferguson run, won his round against the legendary chef Alex Gornichelli. As Fieri told Ferguson after his win, you just pulled off the biggest upset in culinary history. The Louisville chef also won the Ultimate Thanksgiving Challenge hosted by Giada De Laurentiis on the Food Network in 2018 and appeared on the Rachel Ray Show alongside Emerald Lagasse, beat Bobby Flay on the Food Network, Cheap Eats on the Cooking Channel, and more. Ferguson said Guy Fieri, who is producer on Super Chef Grudge Match, has become like an uncle to him and has been helping him grow in the chef entertainment industry. Fieri's mentorship has helped him prepare to host his first show more than anything. Though Ferguson has had years of practice on other shows, both locally and on Food Network, Super Chef Grudge Match marks the fulfillment of his greatest dream, to have his own show on Food Network. The cool thing is the big stars like Guy Fieri and Bobby Flay. They always have their names in their shows, Ferguson said. So I felt like it was a good sign for me that they let me put my name in the show. They could have just called it Grudge Match. The network being supportive means the world. It's them saying, hey, we think the sky's the limit for you. It feels amazing. Ferguson also said, he believes Super Chef Grudge Match marks the first time a black chef will lead his own show on Food Network during a primetime slot, which stands out to him. He is most excited that black youth in Louisville and around the country will be able to turn on the TV and see someone who looks like them hosting a cooking challenge they'll be able to relate to. Ferguson has run several Louisville restaurants over the years, including the brunch restaurant Super Chefs, which closed last July but has plans to relocate to a new location. Ferguson also operated a seafood restaurant, the Drip and Crab, in Louisville's West End for a year. The restaurant opened in October 2021, but was hit with a break-in and some equipment malfunctions in August and closed in October. I'm taking a break from the restaurants, Ferguson said. I wanted to get through all this TV stuff, and we're waiting for spring or summer to see what we'll do with Super Chefs. Fans can cook along with Ferguson and get his tips for making the ultimate burger, surf and turf, fried chicken, and more at foodnetwork.com slash superchefgrudgematch. Super Chef Grudge Match is produced by Knuckle Sandwich and Lando Entertainment for Food Network and Discovery Plus. It premieres February 7th at 9 p.m. You can reach food reporter Dahlia Gabor at dgabour at gannett.com. Since I have some time left um, and I'm the reader for today, I'm going to go back to the front page and read an article that I didn't have time for. Uh, States target transgender health care in first bills of 23. 
The focus is on multiple facets of livelihood, and this is from Hannah Schoenbaum. After a midterm election and record flow of anti-transgender legislation last year, Republican state lawmakers this year are zeroing in on questions, questions of bodily autonomy with new proposals to limit gender-affirming health care and abortion access. More than two dozen bills seeking to restrict transgender health care access have been introduced across 11 states, Kansas, Kentucky, Missouri, Montana, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Virginia for the legislative sessions beginning in early 2023. Bills targeting other facets of trans livelihood have been filed in many of the same states and are expected in several others with GOP majorities. Gender-affirming health care providers and parents of trans youths are the primary targets of these bills, many of which seek to criminalize helping a trans child obtain what doctors and psychologists widely consider medically necessary care. Erin Reed, a researcher who tracks transgender legislation, said state houses where Republicans expanded their margins in the midterms will likely double down on anti-trans legislation this year and reintroduce some of the more drastic measures that didn't pass in previous sessions. Of the 35 anti-LGBTQ bills already introduced in Texas, three would classify providing gender-affirming care to minors as a form of child abuse, following a directive from Republican Governor Greg Abbott that ordered child welfare agents to open abuse investigations into parents who let their children receive gender-affirming care. In Tennessee, the GOP-controlled legislature announced after Election Day that its first priority would be to ban medical providers from altering a child's hormones or providing surgeries that enable them to present as a gender different from their sex. The pre-filed bill would replace present law with more stringent restrictions. The World Professional Association for Transgender Health said last year that teens experiencing gender dysphoria can start taking hormones at age 14 and can have certain surgeries at ages 15 or 17. The group acknowledged potential risk but said it was unethical to withhold early treatments, which can improve psychological well-being and reduce suicide risk. Legislation pre-filed last week in Republican-controlled Oklahoma, which passed restrictions last year on trans participation in sports and school bathroom usage, seeks to ban gender-affirming care for patients under age 26 and block it from being covered under the state's Medicaid program. This is the worst anti-trans bill I have ever seen filed in any state, Reed said, noting that adult medical transition bans were a hypothetical ex escalation until recently. Another Oklahoma proposal would prohibit distribution of public funds to organizations that provide gender-affirming procedures to patients younger than 21. 
It's irresponsible for anybody in healthcare to provide or recommend life-altering surgeries that may later be regretted, said the bill's sponsor, Republican State Representative Jim Olson. Performing irreversible procedures on young people can do irreparable harm to them mentally and physically later in life. A similar bill, pre-filed in South Carolina, where Republicans control both chambers, also requires that trans adults older than 21 obtain referrals from their doctor and a licensed psychiatrist before they can begin treatment. Kathy Renna, spokesperson for the National LGBTQ Task Force, said she views these bills as the product of a permissible climate of hate driven by disinformation and fear-mongering that made anti-LGBTQ rhetoric more palatable in the years since former President Donald Trump's election in 2016. We have politicians, celebrities, and just folks in our communities who were given permission under Trump to kind of pick that scab and do and say harmful things without consequence, Renna said. It unleashed a nightmare Pandora's box of sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, anti-Semitism. When you look at the last few years, she said of the LGBTQ community, we feel like we're under attack in a way that we have not for decades. Meanwhile, Democrats in some states are taking a more aggressive approach to transgender health protections. A new California law effective as of January 1st, shields families of transgender youth from criminal prosecution if they travel to California for gender-affirming health procedures such as surgeries or hormone therapy from states that ban such treatments for minors. Making California a refuge for trans youth and their parents, the law blocks out-of-state subpoenas and prohibits medical providers from sharing information on gender-affirming care with out-of-state entities. Another California bill would expand those protections by prohibiting a magistrate from issuing an arrest warrant for violating another state's law that criminalizes helping someone obtain an abortion or gender-affirming care. An Illinois lawmaker introduced a similar sanctuary bill last year. The State House passed another bill Friday to increase protections for patients and providers of abortions and gender-affirming treatments. And in Minnesota, where Democrats gained a trifecta of state government control in the midterm elections, a new bill would give the state jurisdiction in child custody cases involving parents who bring their children to Minnesota for gender-affirming health care. Reed, a trans woman, is monitoring a growing list of other proposals across state houses, including drag performance bans, bathroom usage restrictions, limits on LGBTQ discussions in schools, and obstacles to changing the gender marker on a driver's license or birth certificate. But the rising age minimums proposed to access gender-affirming care among her, are among her chief concerns. Adult transition bans are coming into play, and I'm already hearing some talk of 
Well, the brain doesn't finish developing until 25, so why not restrict it until then, she said. Any further loss of autonomy is incredibly concerning. Hannah Schoenbaum, based in Raleigh, North Carolina, is a core member for the Associated Press Report for America Statehouse News Initiative. Report for America is a nonprofit national service program that places journalists in local newsrooms to report on undercovered issues. We have a few minutes left, and I'd like to read um, a timely opinion contribution from Dr. Jerome Adams, a former U.S. Surgeon General, who is a distinguished professor and executive director of health equity and issues at Purdue University and a member of the USA Today Board of Contributors. I'll read as much as I can. Want to honor Demar Hamlin? Learn CPR. It made all the difference for him. He might not be alive today if his cardiac arrest had occurred any way other than on an NFL field with over 20 medical personnel trained and prepared to respond. His story thankfully seems to be heading toward a positive endings. His doctors report that he is neurologically intact and on his way to recovery. In just a few days, numerous aspects of his shocking cardiac arrest have been discussed and dissected, from the dangers of high-impact youth sports to wild speculations about whether vaccines could have been a contributor. But while I know nothing about this particular case than anyone else, I can tell you that the hit to an area directly over his heart was classic for Camosho cordis, a condition unrelated to vaccines or COVID-19, and that an individual's risk of myocarditis appears to be far greater after a COVID infection than after a COVID vaccine. Unfortunately, the most important part of how Hamlin miraculously got to this point, from literally lying lifeless on a field to asking who won the game, isn't getting nearly enough discussion. Hamlin is alive today because he received prompt and high-quality CPR. What is CPR? Cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, is an emergency procedure that can help save a person's life if they are in cardiac arrest and their heart is unable to pump blood to vital organs of the body. By the way, the um, uh, the title of this article, and I we have to sign off now, though, is Want to Honor Damar Hamlin? Learn CPR. It made all the difference for him. This concludes excerpts from the Courier-Journal for Monday, January 9th. Your reader has been Vicki Trupiano. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.